you guys got to look at me all the time. Man. I know you see a lot of me. But literally, you pay me to be here, so it's your fault. It's, it's absolutely my joy to, and every time I'm here on a Sunday morning, during the middle of the week when we have, whenever we're together, I am truly overjoyed by the family that we have and how blessed I am to be a part of it. I, I think God orchestrated some really good things, uh, bringing us together. And Just wanted to say, totally has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to say it because I, I truly think that. I just want to share with you how much I appreciate you guys. So totally switching subjects, hard break. Uh, does anybody know what a, this picture is? Oh, yes, it is a map. Okay. Uh, I should clarify. What is it a map of? <laughs> what do you think it's a map of? <laughs> okay. I see where this is going. Chuck, CJ. You guys are being naughty. Any guesses? Actual guesses? Okay, Jerusalem is a guess. Nate just broke a chair. No one pay attention to that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you because I don't think you're going to guess. This is a radiation map of Chernobyl. I, I guess you guys weren't going to get there. Um, so Chernobyl, um, if you're unfamiliar, was a reactor meltdown uh, in the late 80s in uh, what is now Ukraine, northern part of Ukraine. And there have been a lot of really dangerous um, nuclear accidents um, since we have unlocked the potential of the atom, um, Fukushima was uh, very recent in 2011 in Japan. So nuclear energy is this amazing source, uh, but it's also extremely deadly if it's not handled properly. Um, radiation, not all radiation, by the way, is deadly. Uh, the complete electromagnetic spectrum is considered all radiation, so everything from the X-rays that are literally passing through us at this moment to get to your car radios, to the color that's hitting your eyes is visual radiation. It's in the visual light spectrum. That's all radiation, and that's not really harmful. What we are talking about when we're talking about like nuclear radiation is what is referred to as ionizing radiation. And ionizing radiation is, is dangerous because it has enough energy to push an electron out of the way, to, to move it. Uh, when it hits something, when it passes through a substance. Now, if you were a rock, it wouldn't really make a difference if some of your electrons got jostled around. However, if you're a living organism like me, if ionizing radiation hits you, it can uh, disrupt chemistry in your body. It can literally change molecules. It can also destroy DNA. And that leads to various diseases and cancer, all bad things. Um... It's also important to know that everything is technically radioactive, ionizing radioactive, like the bad kind. Potatoes, bananas, granite countertops, even your mom. They're all radioactive. <laughs> and it isn't a fact that something is radioactive or not that makes it dangerous. It's about how radioactive something is. So everything is radioactive. It's just how radioactive. So when you look at this map of Chernobyl and you see, wow, that looks pretty bad, 
And you're right, it is pretty bad, but it's actually not as bad as you think. As you get closer to the center, which is right here, as you get closer and closer and closer, the amount of radioactivity goes up. So here's a chart of various radioactive exposures that you could have in a daily life. So here is a chest x-ray. By the way, the term for measuring radioactivity is called a sievert. It doesn't matter, just know that it measures, and we're going to help us keep track of units that way. So these are millisieverts, which is one one-thousandth of a sievert. If you get a chest x-ray, it's 0.1 sieverts, all right? Um, if you go up here, like if you get a full body uh, CT scan, you're looking at something like uh, around 10 to 15 sieverts, okay? A millisieverts, excuse me. And then here, you'll see at Chernobyl, uh, they actually have it listed, the people who were uh, relocated after the blast, so Chernobyl is actually a few miles away from the reactor, they experienced something around uh, 100 millisieverts, or 0.1 sieverts. And if you go all the way up here at the top, you'll see that if you are exposed to 10,000 millisieverts, or if you do the math, 10 sieverts, you will probably die within a couple weeks. Okay, that's definitely a lethal dose if it's in short exposure. Um, and you'll see here that the dosage recorded at Chernobyl workers died within a month at 6,000. So if they were exposed to at least 6,000 uh, millisieverts or six sieverts, you're definitely going to be dead. And I think it's somewhere around, yeah, right around one sievert in a short period of time, you increase your chance of cancer by 5%. So, so the bottom line is it's bad. Um, and here, keep this in mind that 10 sieverts, 10 complete sieverts or 10,000 millisieverts, is a lethal dose. Keep that in mind as we look at this chart from Chernobyl. So, if you were a while away and you were near the concrete mixing unit, you would experience 0.1-ish sievert, or 100 millisieverts. As you'll see here, that was what they recorded for the people who live nearby. But if you were to happen to run into the reactor, <laughs> if you just were running over there, you would be exposed to 300 sieverts an hour of radiation, which, remember, a lethal dose is 10. So the people who were right next to the reactor when it died had enough radioactive exposure to die literally within less than a minute. And three of them pretty much died instantly when it started leaking radioactivity. It's pretty mind-blowing that uh, nuclear energy is so dangerous. I mean, it it literally rips apart your DNA. So, um, looking at uh, this, you might be wondering, why, why are we talking about it? Well, it turns out that radiation and God have a lot in common. Before you look at me, like, what are you talking about? Just let me explain my thought process here. So, you see, God is what we call Holy. It's what the Bible calls holy, which we've talked about before, but I want to explain it again. It means set apart, completely unique. And God's holiness is a result of his love and goodness and mercy and purity and the fact that he created things like the universe. And sin is everything that's not holy, which is disobedience to God. It's greed, it's impatience, it's anger, it's evil, it's wickedness. And so if God is so holy... The problem is that anything that isn't holy is 
destroyed by God's holiness. It just cannot be in proximity to God's holiness, which poses a problem because we are sinners. All of mankind is wicked. So God's holiness is kind of like radiation. If you don't take special precaution, you get close enough to it and you're not ready for it, you're not prepared for it, it's going to destroy you. And you see, this is the problem with the Bible that is trying to pose this whole time, is that God was with his people, but now there's this separation and he wants to be back with them. But if he goes back to them, it's like bringing a nuclear reactor right into the middle of your neighborhood. It's a bad deal if you're not prepared for it. And that's exactly what we saw happen in Exodus. So God is at a distance in Exodus where he's on top of the mountain and the people are at the base of the mountain. There's a good distance there. But then they build the tabernacle and God's glory and his presence comes down to the tabernacle smack dab in the middle of their camp. And you can see where the problem is. God's holiness is, is so powerful that if the people aren't prepared, it will destroy them. We'll take a look at an example of that from Leviticus in a little bit. I do also want to point out here that we're going to be looking at Leviticus and Deuteronomy kind of together because Leviticus and Deuteronomy cover a lot of the same stuff. Leviticus is what I call the first giving of the law. And then Deuteronomy, the name literally means second law or the second giving. So this is when Moses um, mentioned it again. So go ahead and open up your books, your Bibles rather, to it's a book. Open up your books, your Bibles, to Leviticus. And while we're doing that, I'm going to go through the basic structure of Leviticus and Deuteronomy so that we can have an idea of what's going on here. So like I said, Leviticus is this help guide to the people of Israel so that they can live in proximity to God, so that they can be an example to, of his holiness to the world. So this is, this is the manual. Leviticus is the manual. How do you deal with the nuclear reactor of holiness? You know, like, how, how do you deal with that? How do you live in proximity to God? Well, Leviticus has seven different sections. And you can see them here. One through seven, eight through ten, eleven through fifteen, and so on and so forth. And the cool thing about Leviticus is that it's actually uh, symmetrical. It's split up um, both sides in the same way. So you have three different main sections. You have sections on rituals and offerings. You have sections on priesthood. And you have sec- uh, sections on purity laws. And then they're reversed on the other side. You can see it kind of works its way towards the center. And at the center of the book is the Day of Atonement Festival. And we'll go through those a little bit more in detail in a minute. But I also want to cover how Deuteronomy is broken up. So Deuteronomy has three sections. In chapters 1 through 11, and just so you know, Deuteronomy is Moses' last words before the Israelites enter the promised land, and he is not allowed to. So he's, he's trying to impart the last bit of wisdom to him, and he starts out in chapters 1 by 11 saying, you guys messed up a lot. You really messed up. But you don't have to be like your fathers. You can choose a different way. And that's just highlighting Israel's rebellion. And then the second section, Moses goes over pretty much all of Leviticus. <laughs> he says, here is the entire law, again. And he kind of explains some things and he contextualizes it so that this current generation understands before they go into the promised land. 
And then the last section of Deuteronomy is where Moses presents to them the choice of life and death, blessing or curse. Are you going to live for God or are you not going to live for God? Right? So this is about all of Deuteronomy that we're going to touch for the day. Because the main portion of Deuteronomy, chapters 12 to 26, the actual law part that Moses explains, is what we're going to be covering here in Leviticus today. And if you ever really want to know what Deuteronomy says, just read it. It's right there. Every single day. You can read it whenever you want. So, let's go back through uh, Leviticus. And let's look at some highlights here. So, look at Leviticus 1, chapter 1 with me. The very first verse. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So this highlights the problem that I mentioned earlier. Why is Moses outside of the tent of meeting? They built this tabernacle. It's this place where God resides. Moses had been speaking to God beforehand, but he can't. He can't go into the tabernacle yet because he isn't made holy. He isn't pure. And if he were to go in there, he'd be killed. So, because God is holy and Moses is not, because God is pure and the people are not, God goes about telling Moses all of these things that Israel can do so that they can live with God. And he starts out by giving ritual sacrifices. Rituals, excuse me, and sacrifices that Israel can do to do two things. They can say, thank you, and they can say, I'm sorry. All right? (laughs) That's what Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 is all about. There are two main offerings, the grain offering and the fellowship offering, that God gives to the people of Israel that says, if you want to thank me, if you want to recognize me, do these things. And then he gives them three offerings, the burnt offering, the purification offering, and the restitution offering. And he says, if you're sorry, if you've sinned, if, and he gets into more specifics, do these things so that you can be cleansed again and become pure. That's really what all Leviticus is about. It's about a state of purity and impurity. All right? And being ritually impure is not a sin. It just means that you can't go into the presence of God. And you need to get back into right standing. So there are ways for Israel to repent. And to say sorry. And in this, we see the heart of God. We see his love and his mercy towards his people. Instead of destroying them for their sin, instead of pushing them away and keeping his distance, God would rather forgive them. He'd rather give them a way to come in close and to fellowship with him and to commune with him. God didn't have to do it this way, but he did because of his great love. And there's another set of rituals listed at the end of the book. You can see here. Section 1 and Section 7 are tied together. And in the last chapters um, of Leviticus and Section 7, they go over the seven annual feasts, which are supposed to be reminders of the story of how God saved the people from Egypt and how he worked in their lives and how he's continuing to work in their lives. And this is so that they remember who God is. And it's really important to remember who God is because if you forget, you do what people do in the book of Judges, which is whatever they want, and it ends up badly. All right, so let's move on to the second section here, the second set of topics. 
So in chapters 8 through 10, we see the ordination of the priest. They are anointed, Aaron and his sons. And we also see the anointing of the tabernacle. And this was God's way of saying to his people that this tent and these people are special. They're unique. They're holy. They're designed for a purpose. And then in the matching section in chapters 21 through 22, we get the list of qualifications of the priests. We see that the priests were held to a high moral standard, higher than the people, because of their connection to God and their connection to people. So you see the priests were in this interesting role. They represented the people to God, and then they would turn around and they would represent God to the people. So they had to make sure that they were held to a higher standard of holiness, to a higher level of purity. And they needed to be more holy because they were in direct contact with the most holy living God. So as you kind of work your way out to end, you have the rest of the world, which is like the outside of that Chernobyl map. And as you work your way in towards the center, you get more and more holy. So you have everybody else. Then you have the nation of Israel, which is a little more holy and set apart. And then you have the priests, which are a little more holy and set apart. And then you have the tabernacle, which is even more holy and set apart. And then you have the holy of holies inside of the tabernacle, which is even more holy and set apart. And then you have God himself, which is completely unique, the most holy that anything can be. And so the priests are the next step in getting into that, um, into that communion with God. And they have to do special things to enter the tabernacle. And then even more special things to enter into the holy of holies. But not every priest understood this, right? Not every priest took the job seriously, and they paid the consequences. And we actually see an example of that in chapter 10. So turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to take a look at what happens when you mess around with God's holiness. So Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, what fun names, they are anointed as the first priests of the tabernacle. And they're anointed at the same time as the tabernacle. So this is the first time that someone is really performing these ritual rites. This is the first time that God is establishing all these things. And we see this amazing show of God's glory. It's a pretty awesome scenario. Everything is sanctified and holy. And now Nadab and Abihu are here as priests. Look at verse 1. So now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans... And after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So Nadab and Abihu are currently in a very bad place. They have broken the code that God laid out for them so that they could be holy, so that they could be in his presence, so that they could be in the tent of meeting. He was very clear exactly what they needed to do. But they didn't, and they offered what is called strange fire. And while we don't know exactly all the details of what that is, it is very clear that it is not what God wanted them to do. So anyway, they go ahead, they offer this strange fire in the tabernacle, and this is what happens. Look at verse 2. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Right, right after his sons are killed. The first thing Moses says is, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. 
So Aaron therefore kept silent. Aaron realized, you're right. We messed around with God's holiness. We, we sinned in his very presence. And that has really, really bad consequences. And it seems harsh at first. But God warned them. He said, I want you to be with me. I, I love you. I want you to be in my presence. But if you're going to be in my presence, it's going to take some kind of special equipment, some kind of special rituals, some practices, so that you're prepared for what's coming. And Nadab and Abihu ignored that, and they died for it. It would be equivalent to, like, walking up to Chernobyl in the midst of this crisis and being like, oh, okay, you take off all your protective gear and you just run into the reactor. They, they completely ignored all the safety protocols. They completely ignored what God said, and they paid the price for it. And that is what God's holiness is all about. It's about being completely unique, amazing, awesome, powerful, but so awesome and so powerful that if you're not prepared for it, it can be dangerous. And which is why these next two sections are so important. Israel's ritual purity laws that we see in chapters 11 through 15 and 18 through 20. And we're going to talk more about 18 through 20 in a minute. But in 11 through 15, we find the kosher food laws. And this is a list of things that you're not allowed to eat, and there's also a list of things you're not allowed to touch and do. And that's important because it, these things create impurity. And like I said, it, it's not a sin to be impure, but what is a sin is to be impure and then go into the presence of God, which is exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. And so I'm sure everybody right after this was really listening to what God was saying about being pure. <laughs> Because they did not want to experience what Nadab and Abihu experienced. So God lists a bunch of things you can not touch. You can't eat these, but you can eat these. And this is what you need to do. You can take a bath. You can perform these kinds of rituals. And then you'll be pure again after some time. And the reason, I think, one of the main reasons for these ritual purity laws was to serve as a reminder to the people that God's holiness should affect every aspect of your life. You, you would constantly have to be thinking about these things. Everything that you did on a daily, normally basis has a reflection on your relationship with God. And that's where this second section of moral purity in chapters 18 through 20 comes in. Because it goes about how to live your life. It's not just what you're allowed to do and not to do, but how do you interact with people? But before we get there, because it has some really important things for us. I, I want to touch on the center section on the Day of Atonement. So right in the middle of this book, in chapters 16 and 17, there's this explanation of this ritual. And the reason God has this Day of Atonement is because there's a good chance that you send somewhere along in that year where it wasn't covered by what you did, right? You, you messed up at some point and you didn't do the right thing. And so this is God's yearly uh, big practice of saying, okay, this is wiping the slate clean. This is like fumigating your house. Everything is going to be wiped totally clean. And the practice goes like this. There, there are two goats. One of them is a sacrificial goat that is uh, killed and his blood is poured on the altar. And that is the atonement for your sin. 
the actual price that is paid, the life that is given. And then there's this other goat, the scapegoat, which you guys may have heard of before. It comes from this right here in Leviticus. And it's where the priests would share all of the sins of Israel and metaphorically be placing them onto this goat. And this goat would be sent off into the wilderness. And this is a representation of God's desire to remove sin from, and its consequences from his people. It's paid for and it's sent away. And this is a daily reminder or a yearly reminder to the people that their sin is always present. And it needs to be taken care of and you need to think about it. All right. So as we finish up here, I want to take a closer look at chapter 19. Look at that with me. And I think in this chapter, we see the big picture of what Leviticus is all about. I mean, it's all over Leviticus, but here specifically, I think we really see it. So look at the first couple verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So you may recall Jesus saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is where that idea comes from. Like I said, this is the foundation to everything. And God is saying that all the trouble of laying out the law and getting them out of Egypt and making the covenant with them, bringing them to the promised land, all of that was a part of what God was doing to make them holy, to make them set apart. For them to become like him. For us to be holy like he is. And as chapter 19 goes on, it lists many practices of God's people, how they're supposed to live. And after every single commandment, after every section, God says, I am the Lord your God. Look at verse 3. It's right there. Verse 4. It's at the end of verse 4. It's at the end of verse 10. It's at the end of verse 12. It's at the end of verse 14, 16, and 18, and so on and so forth. A total of 15 times in this chapter... God says, I want you to live this way because I am your God. I am your God, and you're supposed to be like me. You're supposed to be holy like me. You're supposed to be my representative to this world. You are supposed to be special and set apart because I am your God. And if you take nothing else away from this message, if you don't learn anything else from Leviticus, this is what you need to know. You are to be holy because God is holy. The word unclean is mentioned 117 times in Leviticus. The word holy is mentioned 115 times in Leviticus. And the emphasis on these words is a clear indication to what the topic of this book is all about. It's about holiness. And the reason you need to be holy is because you are in community with God. And you represent God. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So we are in the place of priests now. Like I said, priests in Leviticus, they represented God to the people and they represented the people to God. Now we are a royal priesthood. We are in the place of the priests now to the rest of the world. 
You see, we are in community with God. We're also representatives of God to other people. That's why we're called ambassadors. And that's why it is so important for us to listen closely to how God wants us to live. Thankfully, we no longer have to practice the purity laws. We no longer have to follow the kosher food laws laid out in Leviticus because Jesus' ultimate sacrifice completely wiped out sin. And as long as we believe in him and we call him our Lord, our sin is taken care of. So we've been set free from all those little practices. But it does not excuse us from accountability for our actions because we are supposed to be transformed. We're supposed to look like Jesus So we're all in a very important place in this world. It's our job to tell others about how special and amazing God is. How he's changed our lives, how he's saved us, how he's holy. And we're supposed to tell them about how God is going to fix the broken world. And Leviticus was one of the first steps in God making that plan come together. His first steps in establishing a holy people. And what we read in the Bible reveals that God's great love for us is relentless. He pursues us in relationship against all odds. And remember that, that God desires your heart. He desires us in our community. And he wants us to tell the world about him and to be like him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your book, specifically Leviticus, and study how your laws created a holy people. And I pray that you come in and you transform our hearts so that we can be a holy people, so that your love and your peace isn't merely on a page in a book, but is written on our hearts so that we can become like you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.